people said, Amen. Amen. I often think that Christians resemble the three quirky friends that Dorothy had in the movie, the book, The Wizard of Oz. Sometimes we are like scarecrows without brain. <laughs> Sometimes like the tin man without a heart. And often like the lion without courage. When I read 2 Timothy, I think that Timothy, timid Timothy, was probably lion-esque <laughs> in the sense that he was cowardly. And yet I would say to you in the words of the great Bible commentator C.K. Bartlett that cowardice has no place in Christianity. And we're going to see from Paul's epistle that many of us indeed I think at one point, all of us intimidated by, by the world in which we live and the enemies that we daily face, it's easy for us to play the part of the lion who is not like a lion. Our theme throughout 2 Timothy is that we want our lives to be useful to the master. And in chapter 2, that's exactly what Paul told Timothy. If you cleanse yourself from these things, then you will be useful to the master as a noble instrument in the household of God. So we want to press on a little bit from our study last week, which was kind of an introduction to the entire letter. It's Paul's last letter. This is his second imprisonment. His first imprisonment was... Uh, uh, rather comfortable as jail time goes. He had the freedom to see people. They would come and go. He had the freedom to travel somewhat, although guarded. Then he was released and rearrested, this time under totally different circumstances in the period of four, five, six years, whatever it was between his two imprisonments. Now it was a different story. He was placed in a hole in the ground, a damp dungeon underground, and he didn't have freedom to come and go. And while in the first imprisonment he was confident that he would be released, in the second imprisonment he's confident that he is going to die. My soul is being poured out like a drink offering, he says in chapter 4, and the time for my departure has come. It's time for me to be released from this cruel world. Now some people when they're facing death go to extremes. The, the one extreme is to try to deny it, to try to avoid it. Uh, the thought of death coming on is something that we don't handle too easily. And the other extreme is total despair. The Apostle Paul warns that as believers we shouldn't react to the homegoing of other believers as those who grieve without hope. We have hope and that makes it different. And Paul's going to talk about that hope in this wonderful chapter. So if we're talking about Timothy by way of review, we might say in 2 Timothy that Timothy was tender-hearted. Verse 4, Paul says, I recall your tears, most likely the tears that Timothy shed when he was being separated 
from his dear friend and mentor, the aged Apostle Paul. From the book of Acts, we have the indication that Timothy was probably led to Christ by Paul, and certainly Paul was investing his life in young Timothy. He was tender-hearted, and that's a good thing. Tears are not bad. Sometimes people think tears in men is a sign of weakness, but it is not. Also, you have with Timothy the sense that he is true heart, Mr. True Heart. Uh, we get this from the portion of Scripture where Paul says, I know the sincere faith that was in your grandmother, this is verse 5, and in your mother, and I'm persuaded this same true faith is in you also. But although he was a tender heart and a true heart, he was not a brave heart. For it appears that Timothy was rather timid, hesitant, uncertain, unsure. Maybe laid back to the point of weakness. Faint-hearted is not a bad word to describe his situation, which describes many of us in our walk with Christ, in our interaction with the world. The whole concept of lancing talks and trying to invite people to come is so intimidating to many of us that we've already convinced ourselves we can't do it and we're committed not doing it. I would ask you to pray to change from the lion and the Wizard of Oz <laughs> to someone a little bit more like the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to be. And we'll see some reasons for it. So Paul says to Timothy in verse 8, don't be ashamed. So do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Let's stop right there. Don't be ashamed. It is debated as to whether Timothy was ashamed or as some Bible scholars say, the grammar is very clear. It's saying, uh, it's not saying stop being ashamed, but make sure that you don't become ashamed. Either way, it's a word to the wise. It's a warning to all of us. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Now this is a common problem. Jesus said in the gospel of Mark, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory with the holy angels. That's Mark 8, 38. Who can forget the story of Peter who boldly declared in the Gospel of Luke, he said to Jesus, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go with you and even die with you. And yet, what did he do when Jesus was arrested? He denied him three times. He cowered before a little servant girl and said, I don't even know who you're talking about. I didn't know the man. And the mighty apostle Paul, I think, felt this same temptation and maybe was just declaring that by God's grace he's not going to succumb to it when he said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation. Now, if Paul could be ashamed and Peter could be ashamed and Timothy could be ashamed, what do you think our chances are of avoiding 
this very common temptation. So this is a word to our heart today. Although it's from the, the Apostle Paul to a young man who's supposed to be a minister in the faith, it is still a word to our soul today. Don't be ashamed. Now what are we often ashamed of? First of all, our identification with Christ. Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Or in some translations, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. People are ashamed of Jesus. That's pretty interesting. Ashamed of Jesus. At least ashamed to be identified with Jesus... Oh, you're one of those Jesus freaks, your co-worker says to you. And you say, not me. That sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? Instead of boldly saying, yes, I am. I'm a fool for Christ's sake. We're ashamed to testify about Christ and we're often ashamed to be identified with Christ. And it's not going to get any easier. Because although the world still is kind of friendly with the name Jesus, they are not friendly with those who would seek to follow Jesus because they don't understand who Jesus is. If they had the full picture of Jesus, they wouldn't like him very much either. So Paul goes on and says something very interesting. He says in verse 9, but, well he says in verse 8, Join me in suffering for the gospel, don't be ashamed of it. I want you to suffer for it, and not on your own, but by the power of God. And then he goes into this wonderful anthem, an exaltation of what the gospel is. I believe in verse 9 and 10, you have one of the greatest summaries of the gospel. It's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's majestic. It covers some of the major points, and we could spend weeks on these two verses. Drawing out their implications and seeking to gain a true understanding of what it's all about. You see, the gospel that Paul preached from the very beginning of his ministry is still the gospel he's preaching today, and he's proud of it. His first letter was to the Galatians, and he talked about not in any way preaching another gospel. There's only one. And now he's about ready to die, and this is going to be his last letter, 2 Timothy, and he's still proud of the gospel in the proper sense of that term. So I want to look at how Paul draws out these main points of the gospel. We'll just look at them briefly. But verse 9 says that we have been saved and called to a holy life. The gospel is not just forgiveness of sins. The gospel is also us living a different way. Salvation is not just having our sins taken care of, but it's making us holy. We've been called to live a holy life. And don't let the word holy scare you. It simply means live like Jesus. It's impossible to do that on our own, but God has given us the indwelling Holy Spirit to see that it happens. That's the power mentioned in verse 8. And then he says, this salvation, he has saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace, by the way, was given us in Christ 
before the beginning of time. Let that blow your mind. So I am saved, not by my own works, but by the grace of God. And this grace of God was in Christ. The little literal Greek is before uh, time was invented, before the ages began. You know, Christ is the eternal Son of God. He's always been. When Christmas came, he wasn't brought into existence. He simply came into this world. God in flesh. But he's always been around. Before the beginning of time. And before the beginning of time, God set his grace on us. And it wasn't anything that we had done. Now we're moving into the mystery of God into areas that are very difficult to explain. In fact, impossible to explain. The Lord's choices have their divine grounds. But the grounds of his choice are not founded in our eligibility in our credibility in our performance salvation has nothing to do with what we have done it's done totally by Christ and Christ alone now God's purpose and grace in loving us before time began is often called the doctrine of election and it's a difficult doctrine to be sure in fact, finite man cannot understand it. But I find it interesting that whenever this doctrine is introduced in Scripture, it is not introduced to baffle our minds or create carnal debates. It is always there for a practical purpose. To comfort our souls and humble us. Think of those two things. To humble us and comfort us. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Timothy, I just want to remind you that you have nothing to be ashamed of because your salvation is the work of God and it's a beautiful, beautiful plan. It, pl it was started before the beginning of the world and God set his grace on you through Christ. The doctrine of election never sends anyone to hell. Don't think that God chooses some and then forces others to go to hell, that's not the case at all. But there's mystery in it, and we should not avoid the mystery. Appreciate it. Be humbled by it. Be grateful for it. Because if God saved you by His grace, then keeping you saved is not your work either. It's the work of God, and God alone. Notice that this salvation, verse 10, was revealed through the appearing of our Savior. There are two appearings mentioned in 2 Timothy. This is the first coming of Christ at Christmas, the first advent. The second coming of Christ is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 1. That we are to preach the word until he appears again, until the day of judgment. Uh, I charge you, Paul says to Timothy... Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. So there are two appearings. And the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the world. He'll take his own to be with him first and then comes in judgment. 
His first coming was mercy and grace and salvation. His second coming is going to be judgment and redemption for those who love him. So the Bible tells us that he appeared and Christ, Jesus, when he appeared, he is the one who destroyed death and brought to light immortality and life through the gospel. That's why, By the way, the word gospel simply means what? Good news. Now there's bad news first. We are sinners, for the wages of sin is death. By the way, the word death is the, the one best word to describe our predicament. The wages of sin is death. There is physical death, there is spiritual death, and there is eternal death. Physical death is when my soul separates from the body. Spiritual death is when I am separated from God. Eternal death is when both soul and body are separated from God forever. And Jesus came to destroy death. I love the way the Getty song in Christ alone has it. He has killed death. He has put death to death. You say, Pastor, by the way, people still die. Death is not gone. It's interesting that the Greek word here means to be made nullified or inoperative, rendered useless, neutered of its effectiveness and power. So much so that Jesus said, if you believe in me, I'm the resurrection and the life and you will never die, but if you die, you'll live forever. <laughs> and it seems like a, a double talk, but it's not, because death has been rendered powerless. By the way, this is the same Greek word that is used to describe the devil and your fallen nature. None of which are totally gone at this point, but they have been rendered powerless by the gospel. That's why it's so great. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be ashamed of what you do when you sin. Be ashamed of what humanity does because of sin. But don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's majestic, it's glorious, it's powerful. John Stott says uh, this word salvation is a majestic word denoting that comprehensive purpose of God by which he justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies his people. First, by pardoning our offenses and accepting us as righteous in his sight through Christ. Then progressively transforming us by his spirit into the image of his son. Until finally we become like Christ in heaven, glorified with new bodies in a new world. No, we must not minimize the greatness of so great a salvation. Now, if that's not going to make you bold, I don't know what will. Get your eyes on Christ. That's what you and I need. Secondly, people are often ashamed, not just of being identified with Christ, but being identified with Christians. So the Apostle Paul says, again to his son Timothy, don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or don't be ashamed of me. During this time period, Rome intensified their persecution of Christians. Rome was very nervous, nervous about secret societies, and they put the Christians into that category. 
It is interesting that the Apostle Paul never said, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He never said, I'm here because of what the Jews did to me. What was his statement? I'm a prisoner of Christ because I'm here for the gospel. Now, we can be ashamed of what people do that lead them into prison, but Paul said, I've done nothing wrong. Jesus was treated as a criminal in his death. Paul is being treated as a criminal before his death and now is awaiting execution. And it's interesting that he says several times, people have forsaken me. They were with him in his first imprisonment, coming daily to the place where he was under house arrest, but now they've forsaken him and no one's going to show up. We're sometimes uh, afraid to identify with Christians. But we should. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. And so the Apostle Paul says, the one who has killed death to death has brought immortality to light. What does that phrase mean? It means that in the Old Testament, this whole idea of life after death was still a bit murky. As one theologian put it, in the Old Testament we were in comparative dusk. It's like a fog had rolled in. The Old Testament gave hints of life after death. There were occasional brief flashes of light. But when Jesus came, the floodlights turned on. He brought to light this great plan of living forever. And he did it by his death and by his resurrection. You know, often you'll go into a cemetery and you'll see these three letters on a tombstone. R-I-P. What does that mean? Rest in peace. It's actually Latin, but that's exactly what it means. Rest in peace. One Bible teacher said we should have instead these three letters, C-A-D. Christ abolished death. That'd be a far better testimony. And the Bible tells us that he is brought to life. Life that will never end. He's brought to light this wonderful immortality through the gospel. Now, let me remind you who is saying this. These words are coming from Paul, who's about ready to die. He's staring death in the face and he's saying that's okay because Jesus put death to death. And there's a positive spin on a Christian's death. It's not even spin. There's a positive perspective. Paul said for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain for it's better to be with Christ. Now if you really believe that then you can face death with confidence. Not only that, you can live life without being ashamed. That's Paul's argument. It's an honor to be associated with this great gospel. Don't be ashamed. Then he says something else. He says, I am not ashamed. Verse 11. 
And this glorious, majestic gospel, he says in verse 11, I was appointed to be a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I'm suffering as I am, not as a criminal, but because of my association with the truth. By the way, when you associate with the gospel, you will suffer for the gospel at some point in time. For all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you live in Syria, it's a little more serious than if you live in Lansing. But someday, in some way, it might get just as serious here. Paul says, I'm suffering for the gospel and I want you to join me in my suffering. Not that Paul would say, you know, we're, we're masochistic, we want you to suffer. It's not that you would choose suffering, you choose God's will that may result in suffering. But that's why we come to verse 12. Paul said, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted unto him against that day. Does that sound like a song? If I say that in creative, they'll go, I don't know. <laughs> but I'll say sometimes the same things to them about you guys. <laughs> Two different generations. But you know the song well, right? Written by Daniel Whittle. He says, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I love the second verse. I know not how this saving faith he me, to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart, but I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed. What have you committed to Christ? Your destiny. Your soul. I'm persuaded that he is faithful to guard and keep what I've committed to him against that day, that final day of judgment. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? Acknowledge it if you are. God knows. <laughs> Probably the people around you know. You say, but I don't want to be obnoxious with the gospel. Believe me, you're far from being obnoxious. Most of us are far from being obnoxious. We're still secret agents for Christianity. It's time that people knew that we're not ashamed to be identified with Christ. For he was not ashamed to be identified with us on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed. In fact, he mentions he's appointed me to be a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. The way to remember those things is to remember that, uh, to, to look at those three See if we can get this right here. There it is. A herald, apostle, a teacher. It spells hat. A herald is a public presenter, like a broadcaster, like the old town crier who stood and proclaimed news to the masses. 
An apostle is one sent on a mission or sent with a commission. We already talked about the fact there are different types of apostles and there's only, there are only 12 apostles and Paul is like one of the 12, born out of due time. There are secondary apostles, representatives of the church and then all of us are to be witnesses sent with a commission. And a teacher is an instructor, one who seeks to make things plain. And Paul was called to proclaim these things. And Timothy was called to be a pastor. But that doesn't let us or you off the hook. Because all of us are called to be witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We are to all, all of us go into the world. And proclaim the gospel. So it comes down to this. We, we are to guard the gospel. He guards what we've presented to him. And we are to guard what he has given to us. The NIV has this play on words. At least in the English. Where he is going to protect. And keep. Our souls forever, once redeemed, never to be lost. If salvation is up to man, it's possible we could lose it. But because salvation is the work of God, it is never to be lost. And God redeems us, so our hearts are changed. Radically so. But then he gives us a responsibility. He gives us a trust. We are stewards in the old word. We are to watch over what we do not own and one day give an account to the owner of how we've treated his goods. And he always gives us the power we need. The Holy Spirit's power is commensurate with the trials we face and the challenges we endure and the wonderful commission that we have received. And so Paul tells Timothy, I want you to guard the gospel. Verse 14. Well, he says in verse 13, what you've heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love. We could spend a lot of time how, uh, on, on the subject of faith and love, how those two must, be go, to, must go together. Orthodoxy, truth, faith, along with compassion and love and kindness. I suppose if Paul erred on the side of either one of these, it would be on the side of not being very compassionate. And if Timothy was mistaken somewhere and leaned to one side or the other, he was probably too compassionate. And we need both truth and love. That's what makes a Bible church, not just love without truth, not just truth without love. Faith and love must go together. Hold these things. Guard the good deposit, the gospel that has been entrusted to you. Guard it with the help 
of the Holy Spirit. So it's the power of the Holy Spirit who will give you boldness. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit who will help guard you. And we don't have time to look at the last few verses of the chapter. But here we have examples, notable examples, of those who were ashamed of the gospel and departed. And of one who was not ashamed of the gospel and stood right alongside of the Apostle Paul. Someone by the name of Onesiphorus. We would know nothing about this guy had it not been for the last letter of Paul. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul leaves Timothy with four commands. Ashamed, join me in suffering, keep the pattern of sound teaching, and guard the deposit. Guard the gospel. You're responsible for it. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. If the pillars fall, what will happen to the truth? Our world is attacking truth. We must proclaim truth lovingly and stand for truth boldly. And not be intimidated because this world is passing away and the lust thereof. But the will of God and the plan of God endure forever. And so do those who trust the sovereign God. Get the right perspective. There is an amazing story of a girl who grew up with a mother who is greatly disfigured. Little girl grew up being ashamed of this mom. You know how kids can be. <clears throat> they don't get the real picture. And she was embarrassed. When she would be with her friends, she would hear her friends making jokes about the looks and the disfigurement of her mom, and she joined them. Until one day someone said to her, don't you know the story? No, my mom never told me the story of how she was defigured. Well, there was a fire, and... You were in the house, and she went in to save you. And she saved you. But the scars were the price you paid. How would you feel if that happened to you? From that day forward, that girl loved her mom. And the scars were beauty marks. Ashamed of Christ and his nail-pierced hands? Those are for you. Don't be ashamed of Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, encourage our hearts with boldness, for we are weak. Give us strength to stand. And yet, Lord, give us love and compassion so that we indeed would be more concerned about others than ourselves. Help us to be bold. Help us to proclaim the wonderful gospel of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.